Bookie's Bookstore is an underwriter of WXAV 88.3 FM. Located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue, Bookie's inventory includes new and used books. Bookie's also places orders and pre-orders for books not currently in stock. For more information, please visit their website at bookiesbookstores.com. You can also follow them on Facebook and Instagram by searching Bookies Chicago. This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV 88.3 FM and WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best podcasts to you. Hi, this is Peter Creighton from WXAV 88.3 FM. And welcome to this brand new podcast series where we learn more about the majors being offered here at St. Xavier University. On today's episode, we're going to continue our exploration of communication sciences and disorders. But this time, I'll be joined by members of the faculty of the program. Lisa Ozier, Director of Clinical Education and Executive Director of the Birth to Three program. Giselle Nunez, Assistant Professor at St. Xavier University in Communication Sciences and Disorders and Program Director for both the undergrad and graduate program. So I think the the first question I have for you is just what is communication sciences and disorder? So communication sciences and disorders is a field that is pretty broad. It ranges across the lifespan from um, birth and infancy all the way up to aging adults, um, even getting close to hospice. Um, So it's really a field that spans across the lifespan. And we treat and work with a variety of different people, some people who have disorders, some people not. Um, Some of the things we do are elective. Some of the areas that we work in, we have what's called the big nine areas, and those include articulation and phonology, fluency, language, cognition, social communication aspects of communication, AAC, which would be augmentative and alternative communication. We work with swallowing, which is an area that a lot of people don't realize that we work with. Really? Yeah. And we also work with voice. Did I hit all nine? Yes, I think you did. Okay. So so it's more than just, because I think one of the big common misconceptions of this field is it's just helping with speech, verbal communication. But there seems to be a lot more to it. There's verbal communication, but there's also like a neuroscience element to it in addition to the physicality of the vocal cords and muscles and things like that. Yeah, I've always said that we've kind of been misnamed. I think we're better suited to be like head, neck, and brain specialists because we really work with everything above the diaphragm. And then my joke in here, my plug, if we had, we just hired a linguist on to our faculty. And I always tell her, I think linguists think, I think linguists think that we're like the dumbest people ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Miriam. Um, so I say this because um, one of the big fields here, so I am, um, my area of, um, I guess, expertise or love is in child language development and child language disorders, and especially bilingual kids. Um, But I say this with um, knowing that we are supposed to be experts of language, yet our field really misdiagnoses children that come from multilingual homes or um, don't match the race and language usage of the person working with them. So you sit with a linguist, um, you know, we, I'll, sit, I'll sit through talks with linguists and they're all about language development and language and language, language, language. And you can't 
take away the culture from the language. Yet, as speech language pathologists, we're just sitting here like, well, how do we fix it? How do we diagnose it? Um, and I, they just look at us like, are you are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> like, how can you call yourself an expert when you are having a hard time understanding just the fundamentals of just standard English? And yet we're going out to the fields and helping um, children and adults who don't match our same cultural background. Would you say then that's the one of the biggest misconceptions of your field then? Um, yeah, that we are so broad. Yes, I agree. And I think the, also the thing is, is most people think we work with people who've had some sort of neurological impairment or some sort of organic impairment, but that's not the case. Um, we really work with people, not necessarily something that's organic or neurological. It could be just that someone wants to change the way their voice sounds. Um, it could be someone who is more interested in finding their authentic voice. Um, so I think the thing that Giselle was just saying is that as a discipline, often we kind of are thought of as communication and speech and language experts, but really as a field, something that is a shortcoming is that we are missing a big component of that. And I, I think a better approach is that we really are, we should be people who are looking at how language is functional for people in their own setting, given diverse backgrounds and cultures. Yeah. Um, another big, so a big misconception too, and, and or I think thinking of our field um, is that we're supposed to be helping people, but yet we get this big ableist piece that is out there and um, it's really being debated right now. Um, one of the big things right now um, that is really going through the research and going in our field is this whole idea of accent reduction. So if you think about, um, you know, it's, so there's this whole thing we're going on right now, respect the accent, um, because you have people who speak English as a second language and they may want to come in to get our services so that they can reduce their accent. And we have to think about sometimes, like, where is that coming from? Why would they seek our services for that? Um, and thinking about, well, what is the standard, which is what we're speaking, right? Standard American English that's from the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> that is free. So um, that has been a big thing. Um, and I've gone to conferences before where, you know, I'll have colleagues that are down from Alabama, East Coast, you know, South. And, um, you know, we all have dialectal differences, but no one's telling them they need to fix theirs. Yeah. And they're not telling me, well, you know, you're, you and your big Chicago accent, you need to fix that as well. So that's been another big, um, I guess, misconception, too, is really what is our purpose um, when working with folks? So it sounds like really right now, like the the industry is doing some really big like soul searching at the moment to try and determine exactly what it is its role in society is. You couldn't have said that better. Um, and I think that's a challenge right now because some people don't think we need to do the soul searching, but it's very much needed. And that's something that I'm really proud to work alongside Giselle um, because she's a huge advocate for that. I've learned so much working with her and also it's a deep value of mine. So it's been a really, really fun adventure being in this position with her because we both align with that. But it can be challenging when you are in situations with people who don't agree with that approach. And both of us agree on that. Yeah. We've been really intentional in our program. That's awesome. And actually, since you mentioned that, let's kind of talk about the program here at St. Xavier. So there's an undergraduate element, but there's also a graduate element. Can you kind of walk us through the program and, and if you could summarize it, you know, what, what it does here? 
so I um, have just become the program director at the undergrad level. Um, so this is my first, I guess, semester coming to an end. Uh, it's been an adventure. And then before last year, um, I um, was the graduate program director. So we're going into now what other places probably call the chair, but we call them directors here. Um, and it's been really exciting because uh, we are we are in Chicago. We're on the South Side. We have diversity and diversity can mean a lot of things. And to me, diversity means diversity of age, diversity of gender, diversity of um, backgrounds, languages spoken. And what is, I think, underutilized at our university is really embracing what diversity is and how we can expand on this. So I say this because at our undergrad program, we're seeing a lot of post back students coming in um, and they are coming in um, from all types of backgrounds. So uh, you know, maybe they worked for a little while, decided that they didn't want to do that job, and now they want to come into our field. So we have um, our program that pretty much matches nationally all the other programs. So intro to a lot of like communication disorders, voice, et cetera. Um, but what makes us unique is the clinic piece. So I can't wait for Lisa to talk about that some more. Um, but we allow our undergrads an opportunity to work in our clinic um, with some of our clients here on campus. And that makes it different from other programs. And we have faculty that are clinical practitioners that teach our undergrad students. So they really kind of get a feel for what the field is, um, along with the research and the evidence base. It's, I think, a very robust program um, mm -hmm. that allows diversity of thought as well. And it sounds like it's very hands-on too, like you're really getting them into the field as quickly as possible to get that experience then. Yeah. And I do want to talk about the clinic because I think it's really neat for the undergrads. No, absolutely. We are so fortunate here on campus. We have the Ludden Speech and Language Clinic, um, and it's a really a unique resource for, you know, our the Chicago Southwest side because we're providing quality services. But what's unique is that it's free. Of, it's free. Um, we collect um, no uh, fees. Um, we don't bill insurance. Um, so we don't anyone who needs services can come. Um, and in the clinic, what's unique for the undergraduate program is a lot of uh, universities have a setup similar to this. However, usually in the undergraduate programs, you are, you know, observing, um, maybe you're kind of mentoring with a graduate student or a faculty member. Um, but what's really nice here in the undergraduate program is you have a the possibility to be able to um, work within the clinic in your second semester of senior year, which I think offers a really nice opportunity because often what happens when you go to graduate school, sometimes you're in your first or second semester and you're like, wait, this isn't for me. Um, so it kind of gives students an opportunity to try that out before committing to graduate school. That's awesome. Yeah. And then our grad level, I think what this is where it really gets exciting for them. So a lot of our undergrads, we love our sticking around. So it makes our program more competitive because if they're staying here, then, you know, it lends itself to less seats available. Yeah. And we love it. We love that our undergrad are staying here. We love that our alumni are starting to, you know, really want to be a part of supervising our students. And, you know, that's that's awesome, too. And it's not just in Chicago. They're um, welcoming our students out of state, which is a big, awesome plug for, you know, our program. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, we have I mean, it's just it's just great to see what our alumni are doing. But what 
makes our graduate program different from our undergrad um, is that the coursework gets more intense, of course, in the areas. But I really think what's exciting is the clinical placements and the outreach in the community piece um, that you won't get an undergrad because here at undergrad, you know, we need to keep them safe and yeah, <laughs> on campus. Yeah. But a graduate, you know, they can spread their wings and spread go their wings go. Yeah. and get out and be gone. Yeah. So we have some really exciting clinical things. Um, and I know um, we're continuing to build on this, but when students are placed, are they mainly placed in uh, an academic setting, like a school, or do you have them go all over the place? Like, will some go more like the medical side and work at a hospital or a mm -hmm. nursing home or something like that? So I think I probably should have said that when I was explaining the major itself and just the discipline is that speech language pathologists are everywhere. Um, we're in schools, private practices, EI, VAs, <laughs> hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, we're at voice centers, we, yeah, ENT universe. offices. I mean, we're, we're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, so our students, when the what's unique about the graduate program too, again, different from other graduate programs is we start you off right away in the clinic. So first semester, you're seeing clinic, you're seeing clients on campus, kind of in the safety of the London Speech and Language Clinic. So mm -hmm. there's some control in some of the clients that you're seeing to make sure they match your skill and ability. And you're supervised by a licensed speech language pathologist during that time. Really, 100% of our graduate program is hands-on experience versus other programs. It may be like 80%. So that's something that's really sets us apart and it's something I'm really proud of. Um, and really the Ludden Speech and Language Clinic really embodies that mercy mission that we talk about so much. And as Giselle was saying, with our the big, big thing about SXU that I think um, that you were saying is legacy. Mm -hmm. um, really this idea that we have a really great community and then that community goes out into the community which comes back and serves the campus community again. Mm -hmm. And we're really seeing the benefits of that. But yeah, the clinic services, um, we have like, I think 220 clients this year, which oh, is wow. insane. We have a huge wait list um, too as well. And I would love to cut through that wait list and get more and more people serviced. But at the clinic, students are given the ability to diagnose and treat a variety of um, communication disorders. We do everything within those nine areas except dysphagia, but that's too be continued because we are working to add that last component because it's a really big need for our students. And again, that swallowing yeah. is much more demand. Um, we know that the need for speech language pathologists in the medical setting is only going to grow with the baby boomers as they age. Um, so we have more and more students coming more interested in the medical setting. But yeah, we have all sorts of disorders and also um, functional communication disorders we have clients that, you know, from anything from intellectual disabilities to people who have had traumatic brain injuries, um, central nervous system disorders. We also have a gender affirming voice right now as well. Um, yeah, no, so we have quite a bit of population to get our students experience before going out. So usually in that first and second semester, they are on campus. And then we also offer a summer clinic that gets them experience into kind of more complex disorders that they would see. Um, and then they have an opportunity to do a part-time placement, and that's where they're put out into the community. And again, that would, to kind of come back and circle <laughs> to yeah. your question, those can be in schools, medical placements, it just depends. And that's a really nice opportunity because they have two semesters generally under their belt, belt working at 
the London Speech and Language Clinic. So they feel confident going out. And it's kind of that like dipping your toe into it. And, and then they have a final placement where they have 20 weeks um, working full time as a speech language pathologist in two different settings. Wow. So it would be like 10 weeks in one, 10 weeks in the other. Correct. I think the big piece here we left out is working with interpreters. Yes. And um, really honing in. Um, so I know as a former speech language pathologist in the schools, um, a lot of traditional programs teach students to use standardized assessments and it doesn't work. Going back to the whole linguistic piece, like it doesn't work. Language is language and you can't always just give a score to a child and just like determine if they're eligible for services based on a score that they receive on a standardized test. One of the major things that we've been working in our program is really teaching the students how to look at a child holistically, mm -hmm. looking at language samples, looking at um, other variables that might impact the child. So does grandma speak to them in Polish? That is going to have an impact on the child um, yeah. because that is what the language, you know, if grandma's the main caretaker and like that's going to impact the child, whether, you know, we as a teachers or speech paths realize it or not. Um, and so we also have been making a big push for students to work with interpreters. So the students will be like, well, I'm not bilingual. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, if you're uncomfortable with this one semester working an interpreter, you will, that is a life skill yeah. mm -hmm. um, that you will have. Um, and also teaching them how to use dynamic assessment tasks and non-biased, um, this is big speechy words, but <laughs> non-biased. No, but no, this is all important because I think that you're really doing a great job just showcasing how complicated and how deep this field is. Again, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and this is one that I walked in with, was just thinking, oh, well, you're just working on phonics and getting vocal cords going and talking. Yeah, the SNRLR ladies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's, there's such a, a, a um, holistic approach, and I really appreciate how you're talking because it, you're seeing the person. And you're taking all these different aspects into account from who they're living with, who's helping raise them, to their environment, to, you know, something physical like swallowing and things like that. And one exciting thing we want to start bringing is AI into all of this because Absolutely. AI is not going anywhere. No. And we're, I'm not afraid of it. I know no, this is not. But we need to not. learn and how to work with it. Mm -hmm. And it's and fine. Like we tell students, you know, run it through AI. Check it. Is it right? Is it wrong? And, you know, and the students are like, wait, I can use it? Yeah. I, like, you want us to cheat? And I'm like, no, it's like a calculator. It's a tool. Yes. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't know how to, if you don't know if you're supposed to be adding or subtracting, what good is that calculator? Exactly. It's the same thing for AI. So yeah. I think that's one thing that we really want to start incorporating into and really realizing that it is a tool. How Absolutely. do we, and how do we teach our clients to use some mm -hmm. of these um, devices and Absolutely. tools? Absolutely. Now, I kind of want to jump back to something that we were talking about earlier, um, about how you really fulfill the the uh, mercy mission here at St. Xavier, and your department really does how you help serve the community in that. I'm curious, what's been the community reaction to the help that you've been uh, providing? Wonderful. We have incredible families that come to the London Speech and Language Clinic. And then also we have, in addition to the services we do on campus through our clinic, we also do screening services. So we go out into the community. We go into local schools, usually uh, faith-based schools, because often there's not uh, an established SLP working there, like mm -hmm. in the public schools. We also go to local libraries. Um, and we have all these outreach events that we have, or community centers even, too, really are there to work on the front end of speech and language um, pathology, which is 
often we think of treatment and diagnosis. So we think about, oh, you're diagnosed with something and then we got to treat it. But just like anything in any medical field or any place where you're receiving therapy, there needs to be prevention. Yeah. And so um, we really spend a lot of time, we actually have a whole class dedicated to prevention and talking about how it's important to be an advocate within the community um, to educate people on what to look out for with their kids. Are they delayed in speech? Um, also advocating for hearing and how that impacts that. Um, we work, we've also gone to some community centers where we talk to um, adults and say, well, here's some of the natural effects of aging and memory, but here's when you know it's not typical and when you should reach help. Or are you having more swallowing problems? This is when it's a normal aging swallow versus not a normal aging swallow. And that really, overall, I think that community service is great. We've had great response to that. Our last screening event, we had to give out numbers. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, we had so, we were overwhelmed with how many people showed up. We had people sign up, but then it was walk-ins welcome as well. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of like, oh, my gosh, this is the first time we're giving out like it was like a deli counter, like, you know, like calling yeah. number four, <laughs> like, come <laughs> on over. Um, but I think that that has really been that shows a great response there. And then also we have a lot of partnerships with local schools. We have a partnership um, with um, a lot of, we have adjunct faculty who work at other institutions, and then our students can go there during the day. Um, so like Eisenhower High School in uh, Blue Island, our students go out there for a social book club, and they're working with high school students and um, really working also the adult transition program nearby. We have that. So that's, you know, adults that are 18 to 22 um, working on social skills. Oh, and then also we have a partnership with um, a local physician who has really inclusive um, care. Mm -hmm. So we have gender affirming care, uh, or gender affirming um, voice therapy um, for those who are looking to find more of their authentic voice. Um, and so we've been really grateful to welcome um, that population to the clinic as well. So again, it it's not only just the impact that we have by going out into the community. I think what is a really testament to what we're doing is the community seeking us. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's really, I get a needs assessment all the time. I'm always getting people to say like, hey, can you come and do a screening here? Or um, can you come and do therapy here? And it, it, it's overwhelming. And it's really, it makes, it's a I think it's a testament to what we're doing, but also the need of this service in Chicagoland. Yeah. And then I can't forget. So the whole reason I'm here um, at St. Xavier is because I, since I was, uh, God, the first day I walked onto my undergrad campus and um, I walked in like just on U of I's campus, I was like, this is where I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so, um, and it wasn't like necessarily U of I, University of Illinois. It was, I wanted to be on a college campus. And one of the biggest things I've loved even since I was undergrad was research. And so, um, you know, we don't really have a big, you know, we're not a big R1 um, or R2, but um, I've been really privileged to be able to do some research. Um, and my uh, PhD program was really focused on community-based research. And so I was able to bring that here. And one of the things that um, I really looked at was working with one of our biggest um, school districts in the area and looking at the needs of bilingual speech language pathologists, mm -hmm. because historically... It's a population that's been ignored, and it's one that doesn't really necessarily have the proper training um, because we don't really have BIPOC faculty or bilingual faculty, um, and we just kind of think that if you're bilingual, you're bilingual, therefore you know how to assess and treat, and that's not how it works. 
it's a specialized, it's just like somebody that says like, I work with um, cognition. I work with bilingual. It, like it's not one in the same. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. as you work with kids doesn't mean you work with all kids. And so um, was able to go into the district and try to find the needs of the bilingual SLPs. What was awesome out of this um, research, able to present both at the state and national level, um, but we figured out how to close some of the gaps. So, so it became actually a policy piece. Um, and then we were able to then collaborate again. And um, one of the findings from that piece was that, again, seasoned speech language pathologists that are bilingual felt that they needed more training in dynamic assessment, or again, those non-biased, I keep saying this over and over, <laughs> those non-standardized, non-bi, more less biased um, assessment tools. So then we were able to come back a couple years later and provide this training for the whole district and That's not amazing. just the bilingual SLPs. And so that really feeds into our Mercy mission because I was able to be like, hey, Lisa, like, let me tell you <laughs> what's going on. Like, this is new. This is cutting edge. Um, mm -hmm. So providing professional development for adults that are set in their ways was a big aha moment for us. Also makes me wonder and think, like, how do you get professional development? How do you teach professional development? And then making sure that we are touching on this content within um, our program. So I feel like it's just been very serendipitous and very, you know, and they came looking for us, actually. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing because you're 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 meeting the students, you're helping train them, but then you're also giving this professional development opportunity for industry professor professionals to get more up to date and everything. That's wonderful. Yeah, if you haven't picked up, she's pretty modest. She's um, a big player in this field, and she's it's such a privilege to work with her. It's a privilege to be here too. So it's we have an amazing. We do. We have an amazing collaborative mm -hmm. yeah. workforce. It makes coming to work very enjoyable. That's very wonderful. Much. And that's <laughs> yeah. that's half the battle most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I only have one final question left for the, the both of you, and I'd love to get both of your perspectives on this. And that is someone's going to be listening to this program and they're going to be maybe mulling it over about whether or not they want to major in this or go into this field. What advice would you give them? And Lisa, we'll start with you first. What advice would I get them if they are interested in starting in this field? That's a good question. When I was starting out, I didn't realize the importance of building relationships and networking um, and really getting to know the people along the way. I think when you're young and starting out, you think that the world is big mm -hmm. and often you're not going to need to rely on the relationships and people you meet along the way. And the, the world is small. And the speech world is even smaller. Um, so I would say when you are starting out in this field and you're in your undergraduate program, don't be afraid to ask questions. Get to know your cohort. Get to know your professors. You are in such a great opportunity to ask hard questions and get to know the field. Um, and then also get to know your professors um, and get to know their areas of interest. And in getting to know them, uh, we're more than just you know people that stand up and lecture at you. Um, we all have projects and things that we're really passionate about within the field. But those things really open your eyes. Um, I think often you, we isolate ourselves um, and then you get down the line and you're like, wow, I wish I had taken that opportunity to get to know this person more because now I'm interested in it. You never know what you're going to get when you, you open yourself up. And this field has so many possibilities. And that doesn't just include being a bedside clinician. There are many ways to be involved in our profession that's not directly servicing clients. 
but it starts with having conversations with people. And also this field needs new ideas. It needs to grow and con continually evolve, as Giselle was saying earlier. And I think that starts with networking and really putting yourself out there. So I encourage you to do that um, because along the way, it will make a difference. Excellent. One of the things that I have been starting to do is introduce myself with like my background. And I think maybe that might put a little bit of perspective on this as well. So um, I like to say that I am a first gen Latina, um, first generation child of immigrants. So um, I say that in that um, when I tell students that I didn't necessarily know what I was doing and I definitely didn't have my parents to help because I, did, I just, you know, they themselves were trying to figure out, you know, how to pay the bills. So for myself, um, being able to navigate some of this from my undergrad to my PhD and now here at a university has been really sometimes just overwhelming at times. Um, so I think, you know, for students who can hear what I'm saying and, and have that same background, um, know that it's okay that you don't necessarily know what you want to do or um, have questions. I will... 100% say that finding a mentor, um, whether that's high school or college, is vital. Um, I wouldn't be here without some of my mentors that I've had along the way. And what does a mentor look like? It's what you make of it. But as a, again, a first-generation student with parents that really honestly don't understand the capital and how to move <laughs> throughout these worlds, there you need someone to ground you and help you along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that... Um, I look back at all of the people that have helped me get here and I didn't get here. Yes, you have to work hard to get here, but I didn't get here by luck. You also get here because you have people supporting you. You have people speaking for you. Um, I get phone calls sometimes like, hey, do you want to work on this project? And you have to weigh, am I going to say yes or no? And I sometimes like, don't know. <laughs> is this people pleasing or is this actually going to benefit myself? Is it going to benefit the program? Um, and that's what mentors are good for to help you kind of set those intentional um I don't know, almost like boundaries for you. And I say this because our field needs diversity of thought and we need people to step up in leadership positions. Um, we need people that look like me. We need people that look like Lisa. We need allies. We need a lot of everything. Um, and it's a field where, hey, if you don't want to be a clinician after a few years, you can start your own business. You don't want to do that. You can go into advocacy. You don't want to do that. You can go and... Um, you know, work as a school principal, go back to school, but you can be a principal. Like it doesn't close the doors of just being a bedside um, clinician. And um, I think that's another going back to what are things that are now known about our field. Um, there are a lot of excellent leaders out there that were former speech paths and they just decided to go a different route. Mm -hmm. Researchers, um, you know, grant writers, readers, um, because our field sets you up to be able to critically think mm -hmm. and um, being able to ensure that um, you know how to advocate and network. And and I think that's one thing our field and our program <laughs> tries to set students up for is how to be a critical thinker and um, an advocate for yourself and also for others. And that was my conversation with Lisa Osher, Director of Clinical Education and Executive Director of the Birth to Theory Program, and Dr. Giselle Nunez, Assistant Professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders and Program Director for the undergraduate and graduate programs here at St. Xavier University. For more information on the Communication Sciences and Disorders program, please visit sxu.edu and search Communication Sciences and Disorders. 
And for more information on the Ludden Clinic, please call 773-298-3571. That's 773-298-3571. Or you can email the Ludden Clinic at luddenclinic at sxu.edu. That's L-U-D-D-E-N-C-L-I-N-I-C at sxu.edu. Until next time, I'm Peter Creighton, and cheers. Thank you very much for listening to this WXAV 88.3 FM podcast. Be sure to visit our website, wxav.com, for more information on your escape from ordinary radio.